Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. My name is Kristen McCarthy and I serve as the Director of Grants and Operations at FMEP and the author of FMEP's weekly report on settlement activity. Today, I am joined by Daniel Seideman, the founder and director of Terrestrial Jerusalem, an Israeli nonprofit that works to identify and track settlement activity in Jerusalem. With so much news about settlement plans in Jerusalem specifically, I wanted to call in the expert. So thank you so much for being here, Danny. My pleasure. Good to see you. So you recently wrote an article in 972 Magazine that had a title that intrigued me and actually prompted this podcast. That article was entitled, Bibi, Bibi and Trump Scorched Jerusalem. Will Bennett and Lapid burn what's left? In it, you survey an array of developments in Jerusalem from the erosion of the status quo on the Temple Mount to the looming threat of mass displacement of Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah and Silwan, and also the advancement of what we've called doomsday settlements in East Jerusalem, like E1. Only adding to the list, the Israeli government is now playing games with other highly volatile settlement plans in Jerusalem, like Atarot, which has been all over the news over the past week. Um, I urge our listeners to look up background on all of these issues by visiting the Terrestrial Jerusalem website, which is brand new and recently launched. Congratulations, Danny. It's t-j.org.il. And if you access the notes and the web page for this podcast episode, I'm going to be posting links to Danny's recent articles, recent podcasts, and other background um, information on these topics. So go find about all of the facts and figures about the settlements um, there. But I think we can probably do a 20-part series on the politics, the bureaucracy, the diplomacy that are turning away right now concerning all of these developments in Jerusalem. But I want to see if we can just start to unpack what might be going on here. Um, so let's start with the big picture. The bennett Lapid coalition government has been in power for over six months. It took several months for the new government to announce even the first set of settlement advancements in the West Bank. And that's despite really intense pressure from the settler lobby to do so. But when it comes to these these issues in Jerusalem that we're talking about from E1 to Sheikh Jarrah, it seems like full steam ahead. So can you help us understand how you can see, how you see the government's overall approach to Jerusalem settlements and settler affairs? Like what forces are at play here? Well, the first thing that has to be said, first of all, thank you for hosting this. That's the first thing that has to be said. Um, but the second thing is, um, we really don't know. It's very difficult to get our head around this government, probably because the government itself doesn't know. I mean, there's this whole cipher, who is Naftali Bennett? Uh, well, he's a bit like a kamikaze pilot because he's taken off from an airstrip he can never return to. He took off from the ideological left, right? And he's not going back there. Um, how can one, um, say who Naftali Bennett is if it's doubtful that he knows. Uh, and the answer that I am giving you now about what is this government about is different than the answer that I would have given you two or three weeks ago. And it'll probably be different from the answer I would give you next week because this is a work in progress. So let's try and unpack this by um, one of the common uh, statements is, you know, there's no difference between this government and the Netanyahu government. 
And there are ways in which that is completely wrong. And there are ways where it's entirely correct. Um, yeah, uh, uh, all of the above. Um, how is it different? Well, you know, uh, our late great um, uh, novelist Amos Oz, um, after Netanyahu uh, was forced out of office in 1999, wrote, Netanyahu's been like a jackhammer under our bedroom window for the last two or three years. And now he's gone and it's quiet. And, you know, oh, what's that noise? Oh, those are birds. <laughs> um, uh, Netanyahu was taking Israel domestically and internationally down an authoritarian path. Um, I understand that you had some similar problems that may not be over in the United States along those lines. And by the way, there are similarities um, where the, the traditional right has more or less evaporated and um, uh, the ideological right, Trumpian right in the United States and the settler right in Israel are something of the equivalent of a political equivalent to anti-vaxxers, climate change deniers in the NRA, um, you know, sort of cultish. Um, that's not this government. Um, you know, we've been targeted civil society for a long time. We now have a prime minister who says, I don't want to live in an Israel without an Israeli left. There are brothers and sisters and it's a debate we're having with them. Now that does change things um, in a significant way, although the toxicity remains and it doesn't necessarily extend to Palestinians, minor things like that. Well, and I should add too that in the news just yesterday, several Israeli activists home in Jerusalem was raided and I believe a few are under arrest now. So with a lot of limitations on that last. Yeah, we, 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 will, we will, we'll come to that, okay? Because it's, it's, it's what you're describing uh, of, you know, young Israeli activists whose house were invaded without a warrant in the middle of the night uh, because of graffiti. And that is not episodic. That's uh, the zeitgeist. That's the spirit of the age. Um, on the other hand, uh, there was a difficult conversation last night or this morning, Israel time, between Naftali Bennett, our prime minister, and Blinken. Well, it's possible to have a dispute with this government without immediately descending into the hell of anti-Semitism. Um, um, I know international players, significant international players, who have engaged uh, Bennett and Lapid and say it's a world of difference. You can talk to them. It's not abusive. It's not dismissive. Now, um, they've, been, they've lost altitude. I'm certainly not singing their praises um, in, in all respects. It's, it's also an impossible government in that you have everybody from the Islamic movement and the Israeli left, if you can call it that, and uh, the settler right all in one government and it is in some way functioning. Um, and there's an element of engageability, 
we'll come back to that. Can they be engaged on Jerusalem? But we've already seen one example about how this government dodged a bullet in ways that the Netanyahu government may not have. And that was when the Jerusalem Magistrate Court ruled that Jews were allowed to pray on the Temple Mount, uh, Haram al-Sharif. And within 48 hours, uh, the Minister of Internal Security, good guy, Omer Barlev, uh, acted to get it overturned. Um, so there, it's an indication of a certain level of engageability. Curb your enthusiasm, that's not the whole story. The other part is um, that especially during the first few months, terrible things were happening without government involvement. Uh, and in some ways, um, in a manner that was worse than the Netanyahu government. Um, E1 is approaching final approval. Um, at the rope is being expedited and becoming a statutory plan. None of this was done with the knowledge and consent of the Israeli government, but it didn't matter. They found out soon enough. You know, sometimes we told them, um, but they've done nothing to stop it. Um, the, our police, you described it, um, but if you look at the events in East Jerusalem, it literally has morphed from a communal police force with all of the baggage that's attached to that into something that's approaching an ideological militia. But the policeman at Damascus Gate does not require marching orders from the cabinet in order to beat a Palestinian kids, it comes naturally. And what we're seeing is that Netanyahu has successfully spliced his ideological DNA into the organizational DNA of official Israel. So today occupation is not merely a policy of government. Occupation is not what we do. Occupation is who we are. Mm. Now that's not irreversible, but it's not going to reverse itself. It's not going to happen overnight and it's not going to be easy. And it will require political courage to stop that. And I have seen little or no political courage along those lines. So what we are witnessing are events um, that mostly were inherited from the Netanyahu government, which is, um, which are still proceeding. Yeah. And they're dangerous. I, I think the Atarot plan actually will interrupt you to kind of go into a little bit more detail about what's happened and unfolded over the past week. Um, it can kind of elucidate some of these internal Israeli dynamics that you're talking about, the bureaucracy of occupation versus the politics of the, the Bennett um, regime, but also open up the next line of question where I'm going next, which is this international this question of international pressure and um, scrutiny on what Israel's doing in Jerusalem. So can you tell us briefly what has happened with the Adarot settlement plan over the past week um, and how you see the Bennett Lapid coalition navigating th this? <laughs> 
Can I tell you? No, I can't. I don't understand it. It's baffling. And by the way, um, the question that you asked me is the same question that I'm getting from the capitals of the world. What the hell is going on? Mm -hmm. uh, let me give a, a, as dry a description as I can. The Atarot plan doesn't exist today in any formal sense of the word. Um, it's a file in the Jerusalem municipality in the Ministry of Construction, but it has no impact. Um, uh, they haven't begun the planning process. That process was scheduled or is scheduled to begin on December 6th. This is targeted as a doomsday settlement because it will fragment the Palestinian metropolis and urban swaths uh, between Jerusalem and Ramallah and basically make any kind of viable Palestinian state uh, with East Jerusalem as its capital an impossibility. As a result, there has been a, a good deal of pushback from the international community. Very little internally in Israel and very little internally from within the cabinet, including from the Israeli left. Now, all of a sudden last week, um, it was leaked to three prominent journalists that um, the item of Atarot was taken off the agenda of the planning board. And lo and behold, you know, I checked the website of the Ministry of the Interior. I had checked it 24 hours earlier and it was gone. Now I double checked this way. So Talk to my colleague, Chagito Fran from Peace Now, and she's been following. Yeah, it's gone. Now, somebody removed it. Um, there were all sorts of contradictory statements. And then on Sunday morning, three days later, it went back up. Now, you can say at the rope was happening without the encouragement, knowledge, and consent of the Israeli government. What happened over the last week did not happen on its own. Somebody took it off the agenda. Somebody put it back on the agenda. This could not have happened without the knowledge and consent of the prime minister. Um, now, there are all sorts of leaks that um, the government of Israel has promised the United States, we're not going to, it'll take a year before we build in Atarot, or we're not going to allow the plan, you know, to be approved. That's not the issue. Today, Atarot is a nothing burger. Um, on December 6th, it becomes an entity, real, a real plan. The question is, whether it is on the agenda or not on the agenda. And the fact that you have countervailing indications is an indication, I think, of a major identity crisis in this government. Beyond that, I believe that the government of Israel is taking grave risks with its relations with our allies, including our allies in Washington. Um, uh, you're playing games with us. Uh, you wanna have a dispute with us, have a dispute with us. 
but don't play us. Uh, and um, it's almost as if, you know, if we, if we give them an excuse, um, you, you, they'll let us get away with it. No. Um, so I think that this is a dynamic that we will see more of. Uh, we'll see it coming up with um, E1. Can you hear Milo in the background? I can hear your friendly beagle in the background, but it's only only adds to your charm. <laughs> uh, no, no, I add to Milo's charm. The charm is all his. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I would say that we have at the moment five or six major Jerusalem issues um, that require immediate attention. Um, we've spoken about Atarot. E1 is in the eastern part of, to the east of Jerusalem, but Atarot is in the north, uh, fragmenting and dismembering the West Bank. And that will be close to final approval as early as December 13th. You have a pending court uh, judgment in Sheikh Jarrah with the potential of the eviction of four Palestinian families, but there are tens of other eviction proceedings with thousands of people involved in Sheikh Jarrah and Silwan. And this will be the first time since 1967 when Israel is flirting with the idea of large scale displacement of Palestinians in East Jerusalem. It happened once in 1967. Um, we have the issue of the status quo on the Temple Mount, Haram al-Sharif. And finally, we have a, a police that is targeting Palestinians as the enemy, crushing any kind of innocent political activity. Um, and I said something that's sort of morphed into a militia. Now, None of these are of the making of this government, but they're all this government's responsibility. I was in Washington a month ago, and during my meetings, I was able to say, none of these, none of the bad things that have happened were initiated by this government. I can no longer say that. Uh, you've had, you know, outlawing six human rights organizations, you know, without the knowledge of the prime minister and the foreign minister casting serious doubts on the judgment of our Minister of Defense, Gans. Uh, you have uh, large-scale settlement announcements, but for the most part, these are inherited. Now, on all of these, the only place where we can see any kind of willingness to positively engage are on the subject of the uh, status quo on the Temple Mount, where there's a beginning of trying to restore the status quo, which is all but collapsed. And there the potential of good things happening exists because Jordan and Israel uh, have turned leaf. Um, uh, there was a lot of bad blood between King Abdullah and Netanyahu and between Jordan and Israel. Uh, that's no longer the case, but the Temple Mount movement is still pushing things. The um, status quo, 
to all intents and purposes that does not exist, there are hesitant attempts to put that genie back into the bottle. On the other issues, especially on you know, the issues of uh, Sheikh Jarrah Silwan at the road in E1, watch, we'll, they have a common denominator. I think that by year's end, we may well see uh, the beginning of the statutory uh, planning process about the road, uh, a two pen strokes away, literally from the final approval of E1 and a verdict on the evictions in, in, in Sheikh Jarrah. In all of these cases, we will be hearing from our prime minister and from our foreign minister, don't worry, we won't do it. We promise you, we won't build E1, we won't build Atarot, we won't evict people in Sheikh Jarrah or in uh, Silwan, and by the way, it's not only evictions, it's also demolitions which are coming down the pike. Mm -hmm. um, perhaps I should have drawn more attention to that already. And you know, they're gonna be very convincing. And you know why they're gonna be convincing? Because they're sincere, they mean it. They're not going to build E1. They're not going to build at their own. Um, and they probably will not allow these four families to be evicted. But the first terror attack with double digit casualties, the first coalition crisis, the first round of new elections, and this government, you know, you know, you know there are mornings when I got up and said, these guys should not be buying green bananas. They're, you know, they're, nobody knows how long they're gonna last. If there will be a verdict, these families will be evicted. Yeah. If there will be, um, uh, we will be two pen strokes away from E1, E1 will be approved and we will more move towards implementation. Um, yeah, so I've heard this, I've heard this um, from you and, and others that we might be headed to a scenario where the U.S., which reportedly, according to the news reports, has stepped in to say, don't do Atarot, still stands against E1, still in conversation with the Israeli government about not taking those steps, but the U.S. can perhaps be convinced to be upset but not intervene when these plans are given their statutory approval on the promise from the Israeli government that though it's approved on paper, we're not actually going to do it. But then once it's approved on paper, there's absolutely no way to stop it in, in one of these scenarios that you list. Um, yeah, uh, um, again, this is a work in progress. Yeah. Can you um, talk to us more about how you see the relationship between the Biden administration and the Bennett coalition? Um, I mean, in addition to all the things we've just talked about, the, the you know, the, well, I'm curious to know from you what you can say about the, the Blinken conversation that that woke you up this morning. But um, on, in addition to all of that, we have the issue of the U.S. consulate uh, in East Jerusalem that that's a source of um, disagreement <laughs> between between these two. So what how do you see what's going on there? Well, first of all, I think we have to ask the question, not only who is the um, Bennett government, but who's the Biden administration as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is a major um, divide between two periods. 
up until the outbreak of violence and hostilities, Jerusalem, Gaza, in May and afterwards. Uh, we were warning um, in March and April, uh, Jerusalem is going to explode. Um, and we're not usually alarmist, but you could literally smell the volatile fumes. And there was nobody to talk to. I mean, the administration was taking its time and, and, and it was clear that there was an element of deprioritization of this conflict. Since then, I would say there has been a major change. Um, this administration is prioritizing the correct issues. Um, and you don't need to be party to all sorts of um, discussions that go on between the governments if you look at their talking points. Um, uh, when Blinken was here in June, his agenda was um, Sheikh Jarrah Silwan, um, I think at that point at the road was, and E1 was um, uh, early, but E1 was mentioned. When Biden met with Bennett, they spoke generalities. That was a you know a getting acquainted meeting. Um, they spoke generalities. They spoke Iran, and they spoke Sheikh Jarrah. You know, um, so I think that the administration is fully cognizant of the severity of the developments that we're talking about, and there has been a willingness to engage on them. They haven't ignored this. They have not been able to elicit um, restraint or reversal of bad policies from the government of Israel. Um, now, part of it is uh, everybody is glad that Netanyahu is gone and everybody wants this government to succeed as impossible as it is. I include myself in that. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, if you'll recall during the banking crisis in 2008, the banks were too big to fail. Well, the Bennett government is too weak to fail. If you push us, then we're going to find ourselves you know, um, our government is going to collapse and the big bad wolf is gonna come back and that's Netanyahu. Now, the problem with that is that there's some merit to that argument, yeah. but there's also a major problem with that argument is it gives you a perpetual recyclable get out of jail free card. I would say that the, um, if, as an observer, without being privy to any, you know, inside information, it appears to me that the patience in Washington is uh, wearing thin. Uh, and uh, there is growing concern, this is not going to work. Um, I wanna point out something before we address the issue of the, of the consulate, which is extremely important. Um, Something that I don't think anybody's picked up on. I think um, uh, I, I, I saw it in one place. And when I mention it to senior people in the administration in Washington or you know the embassy here, they don't know about it. President Biden gave a speech about two weeks ago, exactly two weeks ago, on infrastructures, nothing to do with the Middle East. And he digressed off the cuff and went into a couple of, paragraph saying, we've got to get back in the game, guys. 
um, we have to become more involved in the global scene. And if we don't do it, who else is going to deal with the crises in the Middle East? And then one sentence he said, who else is going to deal with Israel-Palestine if not the United States? Um, and what is fascinating about that is it wasn't planned. It's, you know, this is something that came from the heart. Um, and I, I'm encouraged by that. Now, every once in a while, the issue of the consulate, you know, comes out publicly. I think this, this issue is probably consuming more attention, more energy, and is more volatile than uh, most people are aware of. Um, because at the moment, uh, it's zero sum. Uh, President Biden wants back in the game, uh, his words. But beyond that, the lesson of the eruption of violence in May is you can't walk away from this conflict. You may not be able to proceed to a negotiated settlement or even negotiations, but you cannot walk away. You know, the two goalposts at the moment in this conflict are you can't walk away and you cannot proceed to serious negotiations. What the hell do you do? The United States under Trump forfeited its role as fair broker. Now, to be fair to Trump, which is something that I do with great reluctance, um, uh, the United States... Um, began to forfeit its role as a broker well before Trump arrived. He delivered the death certificate. But the United States cannot play a major role um, uh, given the partisan inheritance from Trump. The United States will not resume any role of any significance without putting Jerusalem back on the table. The goal of Trump and the goal of Netanyahu was to take Jerusalem off the table. Those are Trump's words. The United States has to convincingly put it back on the table. And there is no way of putting it back on the table without a consulate, full stop. And you know, I anticipated to see backpedaling in Washington. Uh, you know, the midterms are coming, uh, you, know, uh, you, know, you know, we live with the pall of the return of the BB, and you live under the pall of the return of the Trump. Yes, we do. I, don't, I don't see any, 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 any backpedaling. On the other hand, um, behind the scenes, Bennett and Lapid are not budging uh, for precisely the same reasons that... Um, the United States is not budging, except the opposite. Namely, it's not, it's none of your business. You know, Jerusalem's not negotiable. Um, it's 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 an internal matter. No, this will be an indication that Jerusalem is still on the table. You're damn right. That's what this is all about. Jerusalem is a permanent status issue. Israel agreed to that. Trump and Netanyahu unilaterally tried to change that. Um, they're at loggerheads and um, seeking a way out of it at the moment. I don't see how that happens. Uh, but I do not see the United States backing down on this. You know, I, I thought I might, I just don't see it. 
Well, we can hope. <laughs> I will hope. Um, I want to ask now about, because it's not just the United States. And actually, before I move on, we should acknowledge that we didn't even talk about Iran and how that factors into the Israeli-Palestine or Israeli-U.S. relationship. But of course, that's a big, that's a big, uh, you know, issue on the table. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't answer you because I only deal with the easy issues like Jerusalem. And yeah, we got to keep Iran it. Is, is far too complicated for me. <laughs> Way too complicated, but um, we aren't going to address that. But I do want to, I do want to ask about the rest of the world that um, you know, is still involved, still there. Um, you know, for, for decades, I think that's correct. Correct me if I'm wrong on my time frame there, but for decades, the international community has been able to successfully oppose a lot of these settlement schemes, whether it's E1, Atero, which, you know, isn't, hasn't made it to paperwork yet, but has been around since the nineties, I believe. Um, and all of these other plans have, have come under intense international opposition and, Successive Israeli prime ministers, obviously Netanyahu, even Netanyahu hasn't moved forward with these plans um, in a lot of, I mean, by and large due to international opposition wall to wall. Um, Do you think the Bennett government's different? Do you think two, two part question here, is the international community still engaged at the, at the requisite level? Um, to incentivize these plans being stopped? And then two, is the Bennett government different than, than what we've seen in the past um, Israeli regimes that have, have bowed to that pressure? The, the world order is in shambles. I mentioned earlier that there's an element of deprioritization of the Israel-Palestine conflict in Washington. The major problem that I have with that is it's completely understandable. There are minor problems like um, uh, climate change, Russia, China, uh, COVID, COVID, minor minor things. Minor. Uh, And between you and me were a bit of a basket case. You have a completely dysfunctional Palestinian authority and uh, an Israeli government that, that, you know, nobody knows how to, you know, peace will not come from it. You know, and, um, so that is also impacting on the entire world order and it's clearly felt in Europe. Now, um, this is not entirely new. Um, a number of major European governments uh, have walked away from the conflict, including those that were actively engaged. Now, on paper, our position hasn't changed. Settlements are illegal. We're in favor of two states. Let's talk about trade. Hmm. Right. Uh, the the you know, retreat into bilateralism. Um, and the number of um, countries in the international community that are willing to expend political capital, time, and energy have, have, has dwindled. Um, uh, Britain is consumed by Brexit and um, is sorely missed in this conflict because the British Foreign Office have some of the great experts in the world on this, but they're much less engaged than they were in the past. Um, 
Germany has a new government, but even before that, um, there was a, an element of pulling away. So you do have Scandinavian countries, France, Belgium, etc. Uh, you have a fragmented EU. Uh, you cannot get consensus in EU, even on basic issues, extremely rare. And things like Khan al Ahmar and E1, you, you, you can still get consensus. Um, so the level of engagement is problematic. In addition, I can share a conversation I had with somebody senior in the administration in Washington uh, early on. Um, was asking me, you know, what, what, what do we do? What do we do? And I asked, are you aware of how much uh, friends in Europe are waiting for you to come back? No, they're not waiting for you to come back as savior, but for a sign. The period of American ownership of this conflict is over, but American major role or leadership is absolutely essential. And the answer that I received was, tell them not to wait, which I did. Um, on the other hand, this government is more attentive to international um, engagement than in the past. Um, there is more than the governments. The sands are shifting in terms of perceptions of Israel in the United States, in public opinion in Europe, in the American Jewish community. Now, I, I have had little direct engagement with ministers in this uh, Israeli government, but I have a lot of friends who have. And they all came away with the same impression. You know what worries the most? Go ahead, Kristen. Yes, what worries the most? What are they concerned about most? Losing the Democratic Party. Hmm. They're afraid of losing the Democratic Party. And they are very concerned that um, Netanyahu and Trump were fairly successful in turning uh, Israel into a solely owned settler enterprise owned by the carpet-chewing ideological right and the settler right in Israel. Um, there is an understanding that this is generational and that Israel is losing the younger generation. Uh, there are conversations with people that you and I would identify as APAC light members of Congress who are deeply concerned about what is becoming of Israel because so many of our policies are not justifiable by decent people. If you look at the consistent spike of settler violence. How can you possibly turn a blind eye to that and justify it? Um, so again, um, we are living in a, in a conflict which is receiving less energy, less attention than in the past uh, with an objective situation which is more dysfunctional in the past, but there are major changes going on which create opportunities. Netanyahu's departure changes nothing, except in creating opportunities to change. Opportunities that were not possible with Netanyahu around 
are now becoming possible, but they're not going to happen on their own. And there is not enough energy to generate rapid forward movement on any of these issues. Awesome. You know, I think we covered a lot of ground. I think there's room to dive in so much deeper on, on a lot of this. With my last question to you, I just, I think it's going to be important to remind people what exactly is at stake here, not politically, not diplomatically, but for the lives of Palestinians in Jerusalem and across the West Bank with the plans and um, with the settlement plans specifically in Jerusalem that are moving forward in the displacement. Can you just talk to us about the consequences this has on real people <laughs> living real lives in Jerusalem? No, um, I'll choose a curious way of answering your question. I have the honor of taking the Trump negotiating team to take a look at East Jerusalem. I'm standing as you and I often have done along route number one, the former green line um, in the middle of Jerusalem between East and West Jerusalem. I pointed to the West and said, those folks over there, they're Israeli. Here to the right, to the East, they're Palestinian. There are two national collectives in the city. One has political power and the other has none. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And Jerusalem is half occupied and half free. Um, the key to understanding everything in this conflict is occupation. Uh, and its impact is not only on Palestinians, although they are the victims and we are the occupiers. I'm not blurring that distinction. Uh, but I wanna start with, with uh, um, Israelis. Um, Israel will end occupation or occupation will be the end of us. It's not a question as to whether it's going to be Israel is going to be a nice place. It's, you know, nothing threatens the long-term viability of the Zionist enterprise. And I talk about the Zionist enterprise. I remain a Zionist. I'm in favor of the self-determination of the Jewish people. But nothing threatens it more than perpetual occupation, which will sap us of our life energy, deprive us of the legitimacy that's critical to our survival. Um, and we are creating a situation where occupation will be perpetuated and cannot be undone. Now, I'm starting with the occupier. Uh, about the occupied, what does a kid growing up in Jerusalem with no political rights, cut off from Palestine by a wall, targeted by the Israeli police as, a present, as, as, a, as an enemy, um, no ability to imagine a trajectory by which he or she becomes free. Um, the great destabilizer is despair. I have never seen hopelessness as thick as what we're witnessing today. Um, uh, you know, one of the worn out phrases in this conflict is, you know, there's no status quo, there's no status quo. Well, 
in one sense of the word, that's entirely correct. Occupation cannot remain static. It has to become increasingly repressive in order to sustain itself. And we're witnessing that. Things that would have been unimaginable 10 years ago uh, in terms of the racism, the violence, um, the gratuitous humiliation of Palestinians. Occupation, the core of it is the diminished humanity of Palestinians. And when Israelis systematically diminish Palestinian humanity, we diminish ourselves as well. Um, and there are precious few in Israeli society who are expressing concern about this um, and acting on it. There are, I think that most Israelis aren't pleased with this, but it's not on, on, on the agenda. We, we are, we're, we're confronting two major psychological problems, one on the Israeli side and the other on the Palestinian side. On the Israeli side, it is clinical despair you know, clinical denial. We're sipping cappuccino on the edge of a volcano. We know it's dangerous, but we're ignoring it. We're in a state of deep denial over the perils of occupation. On the Palestinian side, it's clinical despair. 27 years after Oslo, and we are not one inch closer to the end of occupation. On the contrary, we've doubled down on occupation. Um, that's where matters stand on the moment. But there's no giving up, is there? Mm -hmm. No, there's not. There can't be. Um, I think it's appropriate to end on that sobering picture you painted for us. Um, thank you, Danny, so much for your time and energy and, and insight on all these issues. We always rely on you for to know exactly what's going on and share that with us. So thank you so much for being here. Um, and I just want to thank our listeners for tuning in please, please make sure to check out the FMEP website, fmep.org, and the Terrestrial Jerusalem website, t-j.org.il, for more information and analysis on all of these issues. I will be including links to Danny's writing resources, um, maps, on the episode webpage um, for this podcast, so please make sure to check that out. And with that, I'm Kristen McCarthy, signing off for now. Until the next time. Thank you so much. Thank you.